we have changed. We will never be the same. Our family has changed, our life has changed, and our ministry has changed. And the emotion is not as raw, although probably it's going to seem raw to you this morning, but it's not as raw as it was. I just, there's just like a deep, deep sadness that has settled into our hearts. I think probably one of the simplest ways to describe it is that our hearts are broken. It's kind of like everything in life now is before and after. Before life was this way. And since our son has died, there's an after. And I could go on and on, and I don't want to take too much time speaking personally this morning. I've shared this recently um, in a couple of places where I've spoken. This thought, whoever said that time heals all wounds was never deeply wounded. And there are some wounds that only heaven will heal. Back in the summer, Levi Sabin, um, dear friend and brother in the Lord, I think you know Levi, he stopped in at our home in July and he brought a book called Every Moment Holy. Some of you probably are familiar with it. It's a series of books, and I'd heard of it before, but he gave us book number 11, which is a book about grieving. And um, if you're familiar with the series, there, there's, there's liturgies and prayers. Um, but this one, this whole volume, it's a big volume, all focused on grieving. And there's grieving for all different situations. There's a, a quite a large portion for grieving the death of a child. So I, I just summarized because I, I, in some way, I, I just have to do this. I have to put my heart out there so you have an idea of where we're at. And I, and I, I summarized a portion of that, and I want to read it for you. This is, in some way, expresses our hearts. Oh God, my God, oh child, my child. Oh God, who sees my suffering, I care little now what becomes of me. I only want to hold my son again. All of life is hammered thin upon the anvil of these hard questions. Why and what now? You've left in my heart a hole as wide as the world, my son, and as long as the rest of my life. Oh God, how will this ever be made right? Oh Christ, why do you wait so long before you make this right? Anger, doubt, fear, and injured trust, O Lord, simmer in me like the shallow boil of a pot. There is no margin left for pious pretending that all is well. I cannot fool myself. I surely cannot fool you. You see where every wildfire smolders in the dry scrub of my soul. I have arrived in a place I would never have wanted to be in a season where it is painfully hard to trust your goodness, your kindness, your mercy extended to me, O God. For what do such words even mean in the light of this when my worst fears have been realized? I cannot see all things as you do, O Lord, from the vantage of eternity. I can only see and feel right now this pain, this grief, this unrelenting anguish. I need to feel how I am held by you, O Christ. I need you with me now, O Lord, my rock and my salvation. For I must live through this moment 
of emptiness and ache and loss, then I must live through the next and the next, this moment from which my child is absent. Meet me in this grief, O God. Meet me again and again and again, day upon day upon day. I am not alone in this. My God has gone before me into suffering, grief, death, loss, and separation. Where I am, you have already been. And you are with me in this now. I would follow you even in this, especially in this. I would follow you. If you have a Bible, turn to the book of Romans, chapter 8. Thank you for allowing me to share my heart briefly. Romans, chapter 8. The topic that I'm going to take up this morning and the next two Sundays is what good can God bring out of suffering? What good can God bring out of suffering? And so this is part one of a, of a three-part series. So I want to begin reading at verse, I think I'll begin at verse 14, Romans chapter 8 and verse 14. It says, for as many as are led by the Spirit of God, these are the sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of bondage again to fear, but you received the spirit of adoption by whom we cry out, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ. If indeed we suffer with him, that we also may be glorified together. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. For the earnest expectation of the creation eagerly waits for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope, because the creation itself also will be delivered from the bondage of corruption into the glorious liberty of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation groans and labors with birth pangs together until now. And not only that, but we also who have the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves groan within ourselves, eagerly waiting for the adoption, the redemption of our body. For we were saved in this hope, but hope that is seen is not hope for why does one still hope for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we eagerly wait for it with perseverance. Likewise, the Spirit also helps in our weaknesses, for we do not know what we should pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself makes intercession for us with groanings which cannot be uttered. Now he who searches the hearts knows what the mind of the Spirit is because he makes intercession for the saints according to the will of God. And here's the verse. Here's the verse. And we know, we feel, no, a lot of days I don't feel it, but we know. We know that all things work together for good to those who love God, 
to those who are the called according to his purpose. Father, I ask for your strength now, God. Just give me strength, Lord. You know my heart. I pray that something would come out of this message this morning that would accomplish good in the lives of the people that are here. You know each one. You know each need. So I just ask for your strength and help now, God. In Jesus' name. Amen. I want to read a, a text from a, a brother that was sent to me May 26, two months after our son died. And it was totally well-intentioned and lovingly intentioned, I know, but I was just in my hurt. Uh, there were certain things, there was a thing that was said that I just jumped all over. Anyway, look, I, and I'm not going to read the whole exchange that went on, but let me just read this. So he says, hey, dear friend, you don't know... Don't even try to figure it. It's not someone from Readerview. He said, hey, dear friend, he said, I trust that the Lord has been good to you the last two months. I know that was well intended. But that hit me like a sledgehammer between the eyes. And then he said, putting his loving arms around you while you and Jackie continue to find your way through life. We've wanted to give you some space, but hope to be able to come out sometime, bring out a meal share together just giving you a shout out that we're still praying for you guys and that we love you so it was all well intended but you know what i zeroed it on that god has been good to you the last two months so i responded to him this is what i said i said it's hard for me to say that the lord has been good i know he has in ways but the death of our son is something that i cannot say is good how can this be a good thing the pain and loss is constantly on my mind, and we have a daughter-in-law that is a widow with a little boy and a baby to come. It's hard for me to see how this is good. Sorry, but that is where I am at. I know God is good, but where is the good in this? All I can do is trust him, and that I am doing, hoping that someday I will see what good he has brought out of this and the exchange went back and forth and he apologized and I said no need to apologize I it's just if you've walked through intense grief you know something of what it's like when your mind is just reeling and it's like little things just jump in I want to just begin by saying that there are so many good things in this world so as I as I begin this and it's going to be heavy but as I begin this there are so many things we can thank God for. And I, I think even as we're singing about Christmas and, and Jackie put up our Christmas decorations last week, my daughter said, do you want me to come and help mom? And she said, no, I want to be alone. And she cried all day putting the Christmas decorations up. And so, but, but, but it's good and it's good to all. And, and, and yesterday I had, a, I had a moment with some of my grandchildren, five of my grandchildren, and we were up at our hunt camp property. It's a long story why we were there. And I cut a Christmas tree in the bush, and I said to my son-in-law, I said, John, take a picture of us, the grandchildren and me, with the tree in front of my truck. I said, it just was one of those moments where I just felt a little bit of joy again. And there are so many good things in this world to be thankful for. So please understand that as I begin this. But not everything is good. Not everything is good. I think it is a mockery of the Christian faith and the gospel and the sufferings of Christ and the cross of Christ, 
when we stick our heads in the sand and pretend that everything is good because not everything is good. There are bad things in this world. There are evil things in this world. Would anyone here say that what happened on October the 7th in Israel was a good thing? Would, it, would anyone say that the abuse of young children, and we could go on into that area, that that is a good thing? Would, would anyone say that people starving and dying in parts of the world now it, because of famine or earthquakes, that are, is that a good thing? Is, is death a good thing? Those of you that have walked through grief, been touched by it, know the answer to that question. There are things that are not okay with this world. The end of April, Nathan had a big pile of logs in his yard for his firewood. He heated his house with firewood. And all of his buddies said, we're going to come and cut that wood. There was a lineup of people on Bancroft. You don't know Bancroft. There was a lineup of people with chainsaws wanting to cut that wood. And I said, no, Nathan's buddies are going to do it. And they came with their chainsaws and the wood splitters. And we were not that pile of logs. And it was done in not too many hours. And, and one of Nathan's friends, probably one of his closest friends, big, strong, tough guy, works in a sawmill, it's in the military, in the reserves. And he stayed and he worked, he's a worker. I'll tell you, talk about a worker. And he's there with me at the end of the day and we're piling the last bit of firewood and he's standing there and he says, he says, I don't understand. He starts to cry. This big, strong guy. And he says, this world is so messed up. He's not a Christian, by the way. He's not a believer. doesn't know the Lord. There was very little about the gospel. He said, this world is so messed up. He goes, why did Nathan have to die? He said, the world is screwed up. And I said, Chad, it is. I said, let me tell you why. I just poured the gospel. I was crying. He was crying. And I poured the gospel into him why there's brokenness and suffering and heartache and sorrow in this world because of sin. And what does that point to? What does the suffering point to? It points to this, brothers and sisters, our need for Christ. And if the world was perfect and everything was good, we wouldn't need Jesus. We wouldn't need the cross. We wouldn't need the gospel, but we need it because we live in a broken world because of what sin has done. And pain and suffering, at times, as C.S. Lewis says, it's like a megaphone. It cries out to the world and says, you have a need, and you need God, and you need Jesus. Suffering, Paul says, Romans 8, verse 18, is part of the present time. He says, I consider that the sufferings of this present time. In other words, this world that we're living in now, whether it was then or the time now, it, it speaks of an age in the context of the fall and sin and the consequences of sin, suffering is part of the present time in the world that we live in. And if you are immune from any kind of suffering and you've never faced any adversity and you've never gone through any hardship, praise God, that's awesome. I don't wish any hardship on you, but I promise you, I, don't, I shouldn't say that, one day suffering is going to touch your life because you live in a broken world. Somehow, in some way, you're going to hurt someday. All of creation cries out. It's interesting that four times creation is mentioned, verse 19, verse 20, verse 21, verse 22. Literally, the whole creation, the cosmos, the universe, is what? Longing for the day of redemption when the sons of God is revealed, when Jesus Christ is revealed. And everything that is wrong in this world will be made 
right that day. Creation is longing for it. In fact, Paul says creation groans. It groans. I know what groaning is now. For the first few days, I couldn't even hardly talk. I couldn't pray. All I could do was groan. Literally, verbally groan. And the Spirit of God, knowing my heart, took that, according to verse 26, into the presence of God in my brokenness. And creation groans in its longing for that redemption that's going to come. The Bible does not say anywhere that everything is good and the suffering is good. But this is what it says, verse 28. Verse 28, we know that all things, even the suffering, even the darkness, even death, even the negative things, all things what? Work together for good. There's a huge difference between saying everything is good, but God is taking everything and it is working it to, he is working it together for good to those who love God, to those who are the called according to his purpose. That word work together, it simply means literally to be a fellow worker, to cooperate in a work. And what is God saying here? He's saying that everything out there, the positive and the negative, the good and the bad, the blessings and the sorrows, all of it, all of it is working this big picture thing that God is doing. And we can't see the end from the beginning, but God sees it all. And ultimately, in the end, his purpose is for our Good, that we know according to the word of God. So it's easy when you suffer, right? You just quote that verse and everything feels great. No. If I could turn the clock back 247 days, 247 days right now, my son would still be alive. And if I could turn the clock back right now, if I could go back in time, I've said this so many times, times to Jackie, and I can't, if I could go back in time, I would change it. I would say, God, I, I, God, help me stop my son. I would go there. I would drive to Bancroft. I would stop and say, Nathan, do not go out on that ice tonight. Do not go out if I could change it, but I can't. It was not our choice. He was in the hands of God. I don't know if any of you are I think some of you would know the Lord of the Rings, and if you don't, just ignore this, but if you do, there's a scene where Frodo is talking to Gandalf, and Frodo says, he says, I wish the ring had never come to me. I wish none of this had happened. And Gandalf says, so do all who live to see such times, but that is not for them to decide. All we have to decide is what to do with the time that is given to us. And we can choose. Anger? Yeah, I felt that. I've had that. Bitterness? I can see so easily going over that cliff. Despair? I feel that. There are days, brothers and sisters, in the last eight months, I did not even want to live. Maybe some of you can relate with that. Maybe some of you can't. But some of you, I know you can and we can choose that, and that can swallow us. And I pray, God, just give me strength. Give me strength. Help me, God, to be obedient, to be submissive, to be surrendered to you, to your purpose. What, why does God allow us to suffer? What purpose does he have? What good can come out of suffering? I'm not going to give you specific answers 
either to our situation or to one that you might be going through because at the end of the, of the day, only God has those answers. But there are six good things, six good things that God can bring out of our suffering. I'm going to do two this Sunday, two the following Sunday, and two the following Sunday after that. So here we go. Here's number one, good thing that comes out of suffering. Suffering compels us to depend on God. Let me say that again. Suffering compels us to depend on God. When every human resource fails, there is no one that can help you. So many people reached out, texts, emails, phone calls, and it meant so much. Please don't misunderstand what I'm saying. It was a comfort and a support, and I thank those of you that reached out. It all meant so much. It still does. But I remember one brother saying, what can I do for you? And he wasn't from here. And I was this raw, and I said, if you can bring my son back to life. But I said, I know you can't. I said, one day I know a man who will raise him from the dead. When every human resource fails and there is no one, because no one could fix the thing that had happened, the wound, no one could do that. And I thought of these verses at the end of Psalm 73. You don't need to turn to it. Some of you may know the Psalm. The Psalm of Asaph as he struggles with the injustice that he sees in the world and he gets into the sanctuary of God, and he understands the balance in it. But at the end of the psalm, he says this. He says, Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is none upon earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Literally just clinging on. The only way I can describe it in those early days is I felt like I was going to fall into an abyss, into a cliff into off of a cliff into a pit I couldn't pray I don't put my Bible it was just a blur I remember sitting on the couch in Nathan and Lindsay's living room in their little house in Bancroft on that side road one morning I, I could hardly sleep and one morning I was up early and I sat there in the darkness and I said God you have to give me something you have to give me something out of your word a place of absolute dependence i need you i am absolutely helpless and the lord gave me just the light of a verse and another and another and it was like water in the desert just to soak that in to drink it in just to hang on god give me the hope just to keep trusting you suffering compels us to depend on god the late timothy keller said, you don't know that Jesus is all you need until Jesus is all you have. Dependence on God is the best place for us to be. One of the purposes of suffering, I'm convinced, other things that God does, I've got six, there's probably way more than six, but one of the purposes of suffering, I'm convinced, is to get us to that place, to break us, to break us, to put us in the place where we're absolutely dependent on him. There's not a Sunday that comes 
And even before this Sunday morning, in my heart is this, I can't do this. I cannot do this. What I have learned and I am learning, you can't, but you step forward in faith. And I will give you the strength to keep going. And that's where we're at. Dependence on God is essential in service. Just for a moment, quickly go to John's Gospel, chapter 5. John's Gospel, chapter 5. And I want to look at the Lord Jesus here. And we want to see his dependence on the Father. And if you don't want to turn to it, you don't have to. I'm going to go quickly. John 5, verse 19. Jesus answered and said to them, most assuredly, I say to you, this is Jesus, he says, the Son, speaking of himself, can do nothing of himself but what he sees the Father do for whatever he does, the Son also does in like manner. Verse 30, same chapter, Jesus says, I can of myself do nothing as I hear I judge, and my judgment is righteous because I do not seek my own will, but the will of the Father who sent me. And then one more verse in chapter 8, verse 28. Jesus said to them, when you lift up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am he, and that I, I do nothing of myself, but as my Father taught me, I speak these things. And clearly the picture here is of Jesus in ultimate total surrender to the Father's will. Dependent on the Father. If he needed to live like that, how much more do we need to live like that? Do we? It's so easy to think we're depending on God, but living in the, our own strength. Jesus said in John 15, that amazing chapter, as he begins that chapter, he talks about that there's that metaphor of the vine and the branches, and he's the vine, and we need to be plugged into the vine as a branch to get the life and the nourishment if we're going to bear fruit. And in there, he says at the end of verse 5, he talks about them. He says, I'm the vine, you are the branches, and about bearing fruit. And at the end of verse 5, he says this, without me, you can do nothing. You can do nothing. Total dependence on God. Brothers and sisters, it may take suffering to get you and I there. It is essential in service. It is essential in salvation. There is nothing nothing you're listening to this this morning maybe someone does not know christ a savior or you're new to christianity or i don't understand this world is screwed up but there seems to be something in this message that's drawing me and i don't know what it is but can i just say this there's nothing you can do to save yourself nothing there's nothing you can do to make yourself right with god there's nothing you can do to get your way to heaven it is christ only it is only in Jesus Christ that we can find salvation and forgiveness and hope and life in heaven when we die. Jesus said, I am the way, John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And he said, no one comes to the Father except through me. Is that exclusive? Absolutely is it, it is exclusive because he is God. If he's God, that makes absolute sense. The Son of God, the Lord. There's no other way. There's no other truth. There's no other life. There's no other way to come to the Father except through him. It is an absolute dependence on Jesus Christ for salvation. It is exclusive, but it is the most inclusive message. Because there is not one person that is barred from coming to Jesus Christ 
in coming that way to God, not one, regardless of your nationality or your race or your language or your background, the sins you've committed or your sexual orientation or whatever it is, there is no one that is, that is excluded from that message who comes humbly to Christ, broken before him, broken before him, saying, I need you, Jesus. And all that come that way are saved. That door is wide open for any that will come to Christ, dependent on him, not on self. Suffering compels us to depend on God. There's so much more I could say. Second point, and with this, I'm going to close. Suffering conditions us to live eternally minded. Suffering conditions us to live eternally minded. Verse 18 of Romans 8, verse 18, Romans 8, Paul says, For I consider that the stuff, there's a comparison going on here. He's weighing things out. He's estimating it. He says, I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. Paul's making a comparison there, isn't he? Probably the suffering that he's talking about in the context was the suffering of persecution that was just beginning in the church at that time, and it would get far worse for those believers that were living in Rome. Many of them would pay with their lives. And they would be tortured and they would lose everything for Christ. And I want you to think of the weight of that. The weight of the suffering, he says, I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed in us. Go to 2 Corinthians chapter 4 for a moment. There's a very similar thought in 2 Corinthians 4. It's almost vir virtually the same thing that Paul's doing as he's saying in, in Romans 8 verse 18. We come to the end of 2 Corinthians 4 and verse 16, and he says this. He says, therefore, he says, we do not lose heart, 2 Corinthians 4, 16. Even though our outward man is perishing, yet the inward man is being renewed day by day. And here it is. Here's the comparison. Look at verses 17 and 18. He's putting two things side by side. He says, our light affliction, which is but for a moment, is working for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory, while we do not look at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen, for the things which are seen are temporary, but the things which are not seen are eternal. It's so obvious the comparison, right? It's right there, it's in front of you, you don't have to dig for it. And suffering gives us that eternal perspective. petty things that we get upset over. You ever think about that? The petty things that we argue about in our families, in our relationships, maybe in our marriages, maybe with our children. Can I just plead with you? I would give so much for one moment, even two minutes to talk to my son again. I don't know what you might be dealing with this morning in relationships marriage, children, family, but to do everything in your power. I know you can only do so much. I understand that, but don't waste the opportunities that you have because you don't know when that'll be gone. The petty things that we argue about in our churches, it's a shame. 
to the name of Christ sometimes, what we get all worked up over. And I just say, I touched my son in a casket, cold. And I got down on my knees beside that casket. Just our family was there. And he looked like he was just sleeping. His body was cold, the life was gone. That is the ultimate reality check. What really matters in this life? What do we get all worked up about? Stuff that doesn't matter. I could be specific. I don't want to. Brothers and sisters, what really matters? God, Jesus Christ, the life to come, eternity. Paul's pointing the believers there in 2 Corinthians going back earlier in chapter 3 and 4 and 5, that's where he's pointing them to, and, and he makes this comparison here. He says, the suffering you're going through now is a light affliction compared to a weight of glory. Is Paul minimizing our suffering? Is he saying, oh, come on, get over it, suck it up, get on it? He's not doing that. It's real and it hurts. Those of you that are suffering know what I'm talking about, or if you've suffered or you will, you know what I'm talking about. He's not minimizing it, but he's putting it, what, in the light of eternity. And he's saying, compared to the glory that's coming, the suffering will seem like nothing someday. But right now, it feels so heavy. And then in verse 18, he says, the things which are seen are temporary. The things which are not seen are eternal. What do you think really matters at the end of our life? The things that we had in this life? This is in no way a criticism of, of my son. It's just an observation, a reality. That Saturday, I went to his, their home waiting to get news, knowing in our hearts what had happened. And I stood in his room, in the basement, his beautiful room that he had made, all his fishing rods on one wall lined up, all of his fishing tackle, some that we had just bought five days earlier when they were at our home. We'd gone into Ottawa, the guys, his gun cabinet with all of his guns he loved hunting, all there in orders, hunting stuff, his trail cameras all lined up, his hats all lined up on the wall, his, the antlers of his deer, and then the upstairs, yes, and the upstairs, believe it or not, moose antlers. <laughs> and his truck sitting in the driveway. And I thought to myself, none of this matters to him anymore. None of this matters to him anymore. What really matters, this life or the life to come? And suffering has a way of, of bringing that reality check, and it conditions us to live eternally minded. That's why Paul could say at the beginning of verse 16, therefore we do not lose heart. And he says it in verse 1 at the beginning of chapter 4. At the very end, he says, we do not lose heart. And I love the New Living Translation. It says this, we never give up. Do I feel like giving up? Oh, yes. There were days I thought, I don't think I will ever preach again. There are still things right now that I say, I don't think I can ever do that again. Why not quit? Why not give up? Because there's an eternity coming. And there's a weight of glory 
that's going to come. And going back to Romans 8 and verse 17, Paul says, And if children, then heirs, heirs of God, join heirs with Christ, if indeed what we suffer with him, that what? what? What is the outcome of that? That we may also be glorified together. And then I consider the sufferings of this present time not worthy to be compared with what, brothers and sisters? The glory that shall be revealed in us. There are all different ways that we can suffer. There are some of you here this morning and you are suffering with things that maybe no one knows about. You are hurting inside. You are wounded. And there's all variety of things that may have touched your life in this broken world and you're feeling that pain. There's a day coming, brothers and sisters. Someday, that day, we're going to see the glory of God and everything is going to be brought into balance again. And what seems so overwhelming here, even the worst things in the light of his glory, in the light of his presence, it will fade away. I'm going to end with this. Just give me a couple more minutes. So we had a family weekend, May 17th, or pardon me, March 17th to the 19th. Our whole family was there. It will be the last family gathering that we have with all of our family. Because our son is in heaven until we get to heaven. But we were all there, and I mentioned that we had gone into the city and got fish and tackle, the guys, and we were planning, Nathan and I in particular, we were planning our spring fishing trip, and we were talking about we could go canoe trip, we could go here in Algonquin Park, we can go here. So we settled on where we were going to go into Algonquin Park, and we had set the date, and we were supposed to go May 11th, I think May 11th to the 14th, I can't remember exactly, but May 11th was the day we were supposed to go on our canoe trip. We planned it that weekend, and then... Friday, March 24th happened. So my son-in-law, John Allison, who was supposed to go on that canoe trip with Nathan and I, and probably my son Matthew as well, on May 11th, he sent me this email. I'm going to read this thing and end with this. He said, today is hard. He said, I know we share this. He said, I wanted to reach out to you to acknowledge this, but I don't know what to say. What can be said other than to simply acknowledge how hard today is? Lately, it has been hard for me to find space to grieve, but today I simply can't suppress it. I loved Nate. Not to the depth that you loved him, I know, but I loved him, and it hurts. And then he said other things, and he wrote this. He called it a lament. I want to read a bit of it for you. He says, today is not how today was supposed to be. Today we were supposed to be paddling, talking, portaging, and laughing. We were supposed to be setting up camp and gathering firewood. We were supposed to be sharing a meal around the campfire and fishing for lake trout. Tonight we were supposed to be clicking off our headlights with the knowledge that all is well, that all is not well. Today we are not paddling, we are grieving. We are not carrying a large pack with this heavy sorrow. We are not sharing jokes, but tears. How long, O Lord? How long must we weep and suffer separation? How long must we, must we endure such staggering loss and wrenching cost for simply loving one that you gave us to love? How long before we know the redemption of the suffering until death dies, until life reigns? How long until the darkness fades, until your glorious light reaches every corner of creation? How long until this broken land is restored, until creation is mended? How long until the fullness of your kingdom comes? Let this be the year, the day, the hour, O oh Lord. And then he told a story that year we had gone before. 
my son, Nathan, loved... He would get up early in the morning. He would just go out on his own on the water. He was always going out on his own. That was not unusual. And that one morning he got up early. We were still in our tents asleep. It was dark, almost dark. He got up, he got in the canoe, and he went out fishing. And he came in, paddled in right about the time we were having breakfast, getting breakfast ready. And John remembered that from the year before. And he said this, just a paragraph, and I'm going to stop. He said, this morning, he said, a vivid memory of last year's trip came to mind. He said, it was early in the morning while we were preparing breakfast. He said, I looked up to see Nate coming in from an early fish. He went out before any of us, and even the sun was up. This memory stands out because I'm longing for the dawn beyond this sorrow. I know in my heart, and I hold to the promise, this dawn will come. We will look up to see Nate paddling into shore. And we will marvel at the glory of Jesus together. Father, I thank you for that hope, God. And where would we be without that hope in Christ? Oh God, I pray that in our brokenness, our sorrow, our hurt, whatever it might be that someone's feeling this morning that they're going through, the enemy wants to destroy us in these things, but Father, you have a purpose in it in our lives, and I pray, God, help us to surrender to that purpose. Whatever it is, we might not know. We do not know the specific answers, but we know, Father, that you can bring good out of that suffering. It compels us to depend on you. It causes us to think eternally minded. Oh, Father, I just ask now for you to use your word in the lives of each person here. For your namesake, for your honor and glory, in Jesus' name. Amen. Yeah.